I want to welcome all the guests this morning here at the Palace Chapel. Actually, my parents and sister and her husband and her family are here from Charlotte and Virginia Beach, so it's great to have him, uh, them here this morning. So grateful for them um, being here with us. If you've been with us over the last several weeks, you will know that we finished last week in Revelation chapter uh, 2 and 3. We looked at the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation and what, there's no better place for me as we finish that to start this series in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Uh, in the Revelation series, we looked at Jesus wrote letters to these seven churches, and the seven churches, he condemned five of them and praised two of them. And so as we come out of that series, I was thinking to myself, what is it for us not to be condemned by the Lord? How do we live out lives not to be condemned by the Lord, but to be encouraged by the Lord. You know, there's two of those uh, letters in Revelations that the Lord comes and he, all he offers to the church is encouragement. And so studying through it and praying through it, I thought, come to Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has come out of temptation. Jesus has called the 12 disciples to himself and he says, to the disciples in chapter 4, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And what Jesus is saying that is, I'm going to make you disciples. And because you're my disciples, you're now going to go and call people to live a different way of life. How are they going to live out this Christian life that he calls us to? You know, the word Christian means little Christ. And so he's saying to them, to be Christians, we must be like Christ. And then he says to them in chapter 4, at the very end of chapter 4, he says to them, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So this morning, we're going to begin a series to look at what does it look like for us to live as kingdom citizens. That's what God has called us to. He's invited us into this new way of life, into a new kingdom to live, and therefore we must live out our lives a certain way. The series title is called The Manifesto. If you uh, saw that in your bulletin this morning, the series title is is called the manifesto. The word manifesto means this, a written or spoken statement declaring publicly the intentions, motives, or values or views of a group of people. And so there's these manifestos, as you know. There's several hundreds uh, manifestos. One of the most famous is the Declaration of Independence. That was a manifesto. Our forefathers came together and they began to write out the Declaration of Independence. What would it look like for a country to declare its independence, and they wrote out the Declaration of Independence, and we live by the Declaration of Independence, even today, almost um, 150 years later. We live by what our fathers, our forefathers, wrote in that manifesto. Another manifesto that was written was by Martin Luther King Jr. He had the I Have a Dream speech. Remember that, that speech on the, in Washington, he speaks to uh, thousands and thousands of people about his dream that all mankind would be created equal during the civil rights movement. That was a manifesto that the way that they, they were living, uh, Martin Luther King had an idea, a dream that it wouldn't have to be that way any longer. Uh, just right around that same time frame was uh, JFK's speech, his inaugural speech in 1961 where he gets up when he becomes the president. It's the, what can your country, not, don't ask what you can your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country's speech. He was in the middle of the Cold War and saying to them, let's not be greedy, let's give to our country. And so this morning we're going to look at this manifesto after uh, over the next 26 weeks. 
And it's Jesus is coming to uh, the planet. God has sent his son to redeem all of mankind to himself. And the manifesto, if we're going to have one sentence that we're going to stand by in this series, it would be this sentence right here. This is how Christians ought to live and how Christians are meant to live. So Jesus is saying to us in this Sermon on the Mount, this is how you ought to live, and this is also how you're meant to live. You know, Jesus says in John 10, 10, I've come to give you life and life to the full. And so as believers, do we live a full and abundant life? And this declaration, this sermon over these three chapters is going to be for us. How do we live out our Christian life? You see, if you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. I won't read all of chapter 1 if you have time this week. We're going to look at three short passages this morning. We won't really be in Matthew uh, this morning. I'm going to give an overview of Matthew before we dive in next week to the Beatitudes. So this morning is just an overview uh, of the book. And so I kind of want to set up uh, for us this morning how Jesus came about to even have these words. And so Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. Uh, I'll read this verse to give some context around it. It says this, And God saw everything that he had made, And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. You remember, that comes at the very end of creation. God is setting up his kingdom, right? That's the very chapter one is God setting up his kingdom so that Adam and Eve could live in that kingdom. And that kingdom was meant for harmony and peace with God. And so there's this time period that Adam and Eve are created by God. He's placed them in the garden with God, in relationship with God, and everything is perfect. There's no sin at all. And then we know the story that happens in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Genesis. That I don't know how long that period was that there was harmony with God and peace with God. And then Adam and Eve sinned against God. And they rebelled against God by God told them, this is how you are to live life. Remember how he said, he said to Adam and Eve, you can have everything in the garden. All of it is yours. But there's one place I I ask you not to eat, not to do anything with that tree. But everything else is yours. And what do they do? They go to the one thing that God's asked them and told them not not to go and take. And they did it. And in that moment, harmony, shalom, peace with God is forever shattered. And from that moment on, our first king, Adam, Adam was the first king of this dominion. He, he, we, we had a king who sinned against God, and because of that sin, we are cursed because of that sin. And for the rest of the chapters in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is given to us by God as a way for God to show us this is what it means to live in harmony with him. That's what the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments were one of the first manifestos that God had given to God's people. The Ten Commandments are, this is how you are to live life and so that you will get a fullness of life. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. A lot of times we look at the Ten Commandments as a way of don't do this and do do this, and that's not it. The Ten Commandments were given to us by God to live out the fullness of our relationship with God. God is saying to us through the Ten Commandments, if you want to be in relationship with me, if you want to be in harmony with me, this is how you are to live life. And then we know throughout the history of Israel, they rebelled against God over and over and over and over again until they came to this place uh, in Samuel, uh, the book of Samuel, where they went to God and said, hey, we need a king. Uh, You are the king, but we need an earthly king. We need a king to allow us and to show us how to live out these rules 
that you have given to us. That was, the, that was what the king was given to us for. And so that the man decides that they wanted uh, King Saul to become their first king. And so Saul, we know the story, Saul rebels against God. And then throughout the rest of history, we see king after king after king after king fall, 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 fall. So much so that we'll turn to the very end of uh, the Old Testament in, in Malachi. If you're Italian this morning, it's Malachi. We'll turn to the book of Malachi this morning, Malachi chapter 4. That joke didn't go over too well. Malachi chapter 4. This is what God is going to say to his people right before God goes silent for almost 400 years. Uh, though it's at one page in our Bible, it's about a 400-year period from the end of this book to uh, Matthew, where Jesus shows up on the scene. This is what God says to, uh, to Malachi the prophet. He says this to him in chapter 4. Remember the law. Uh, chapter 4, verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses. Remember that's the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. is all about law, how to live out life. Remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and the rules that I've commanded him at uh, Mount Horeb for all of Israel. Verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Uh, that, that's a metaphor for Christ. Uh, it's not the literal prophet of Elijah. It's the metaphor for Jesus, the next prophet will come. There's another prophet coming is what Jesus is saying to them. And it takes about 400 years for the next prophet to come onto the scene. Um, so the, the, you, Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will, return, he will turn or restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Least I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. And what he is saying to us, the end of the Old Testament ends with a curse or a promise. If you do not turn from your wicked ways, if you do not come back to me, I will utterly destroy you and all that is on here. And so for 400 years, that's the promise that the, uh, God's chosen people, the Israelites, are holding on to. Oh my, God's going to come and he's going to destroy things. And if you read through the Old Testament, there's time after time after time that God is promising them another king. So here's the Jewish mindset. The Jewish mindset when Jesus arrived on the scene was, hey, there's going to be this king that's going to come and he's going to restore all things. He's going to do it publicly. He's going to do it privately. He's going to do it um, through policy. He's going to do it through the military. There is a king that's going to come and he's going to restore all things. And so we see in uh, John chapter 4 that Jesus begins to do all these miracles and the people surround Jesus and they begin to say to him, hey, you're, you're the king. And we see Jesus kind of slip off into the way. And then in the very end, and so we have this time period, Jesus is there, and he's beginning to talk about this manifesto, the Ten, the Ten Commandments, how the Ten Commandments are really in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is going to fulfill the Ten Commandments. And then we get all the way to the end of Revelation chapter 22. Uh, turn with me there this morning. This is Jesus uh, begins to talk, and before that, uh, God, through uh, the prophet John or the apostle John, he talks about God restoring 
the heavens and the earth and the new Jerusalem, which we talked about in our series last time, that God's going to restore all things to himself. And this is what he tells us in chapter 22, verse 3. He says this, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And so we see in God's word, we see two pages in the beginning and a page at the end, uh, how harmony was meant. And the rest of the Bible uh, is full of uh, just the way mankind, the rest of this Bible here is the way mankind has attempted to live out uh, bringing restoration to God's world. And then in that, what began to happen was there began to be these four political parties or these four religious parties that began to grow up around uh the Jewish people to give them ways to bring the fulfillment of God's promises uh, to fruition. So the first thing we'll see this in this uh, these next three chapters. The first group of people are the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious of the religious of the day. If you wanted to put one sentence to a Pharisee, this is what it would be this morning. The Pharisees believed that right religion consisted of divine law and religious tradition. So the Pharisees held to the law and held to tradition so much so that they took the law and added laws on top of the law and added tradition on top of tradition so that their whole way of life was all about exterior things. If we can just make the exterior look all right, if we can just build it around us that our interior never gets touched through law and tradition, then we'll, we will bring restoration to the planet. We will bring the shalom back to earth. And so uh, though we see in the Gospels the Pharisees were wicked people. They didn't start off as wicked people. They started off by sacred people wanting to uphold the law of God, but it got out of control. Uh, we see so much of that even in today's church. The next group of people are the Sadducees. The Sadducees, if you've read about them in the New Testament or in the Gospels, it's a people group that they believe that right religion, they would have to, mani to, to modify both Scripture and tradition to fit their own religious philosophy. So the Sadducees took God's law and they took tradition and they began to modify it to fit them so that they could then live their way of life how they wanted to. I don't know if you've ever seen people like that. They take God's word and they twist it and turn it to fit them. That's what the Sadducees did. The second group of people, the third group of people are the Zealots. They believe that right religion was centered in radical political activism. They were the political party of Jesus' day, and they believed if we just hold up the political party high enough that we'll get the right king in place, and because of that right king, he will restore all things. And so they fought and fought and fought to make sure they had the right king in place. We see what that did. The last one is the Essenes. They believed that right religion meant separation from all of society. So we had this people group come onto the scene in Jesus' day that looked at the Pharisees, they looked at the Sadducees, they looked at the Zealots and thought, all of them are wrong, and so we'll just live separately from all of them. And so they live separately. It'd be uh, the same true for us today. It would be like um, the Amish. The Amish are, would be separatists. And so the Essenes were separatists of the day. And so that's kind of the framework of where Jesus is coming from, and he comes on to the scene, and he sees these four major religious parties, and he says to them, hey, you all four are focused on the external. And Jesus comes, and he says, it's not about the external. 
It's not about what you do externally. We'll look in a few weeks. He talks about it from the heart. And so Jesus comes and he declares this manifesto to his people to say to them, you can have external change all day long, but the external change will never change the heart. And because Jesus knows for us, and what Jesus is getting at in this whole passage is, if we can get to the heart and the heart changes, then the external will change. You, you know, so many people, we, football just began, right? It's preseason football, college football is beginning. And we say so many people, they go and they score a touchdown, they get on a knee and uh, they begin to pray to God and then they'll do interviews with them afterwards and then two days later you watch the TV and it's like, wait, they just got busted for such and such. But two days before that they were praising God because their external had changed but the heart didn't change. If the heart changes, then their external will change and God knew that through Jesus and Jesus is coming to set up a kingdom that says it's not about what you do externally. God does not, is not worried about our externals. He's worried about the internal. You see, it's not the external that's the sin, it's the internal that causes the sin. And so if we can change the external, if we can have what Jesus says, new birth, if there can be new birth in the heart, then the external will change. And so that's what Jesus has come to do here in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. There's this phrase that we'll see uh, this morning, we're, we'll read this morning the text, and there's this place in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you've heard it said this, but I say this. And what he's going back to, he's referring back to the law. Because Jesus didn't come to do away with the law, he came to fulfill the law. The Old Testament is the law, the New Testament is the fulfillment of the law. And so Jesus never wanted to get rid of the law, he wanted to bring the law to total fulfillment. And he knew the only way to do that was to speak this to them, to take what they had been learning from the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Essenes, and flip it upside down on its head. And so that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's God through Jesus taking the Sermon on the Mount and flipping all of society upside down. You see, I, I believe that the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest witness tool that we have in all of God's Word. I believe that if we really, as a church, begin to live out this, this Sermon on the Mount, that that will be the greatest witness to the world around us. Because just like he says to the disciples in this passage, he says, you are the salt and light of the world. How are they the salt and light of the world? It's by how they live out the gospel daily. And when we begin to live out the Sermon on the Mount on a daily basis, that becomes very attractional to people. And so Jesus is coming to set up a kingdom that's attractional, not about the external but about the internal. And so this morning, what I want to do as we kind of close this morning uh, is over the, I'm just going to invite five people up and we're going to read together as a, a congregation. They're going to read to us the, the entire Sermon on the Mount. So if they'd come forward, we're going to sit and listen to God's word this morning because it doesn't matter what I have to say. This is what transforms people. I believe that with all of my heart. And so they're going to come up and they will read for us the Sermon on the Mount verse by verse, till we get done at the end of chapter 7. Please come forward.
And when, he, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, put on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard, it said, heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is by the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. 
Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard, it, heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Giving to the Needy, <clears throat> Chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. <clears throat> and um, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive those, our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, <clears throat> excuse me, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. 
So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I will tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and, let, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like, the one, like one of these. But if God so clothes the grasses of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before their pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will you give your Father who is in heaven? Give good things to those who ask him. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. 
are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, for the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Maybe you blessed by the hearing of God's word this morning. I love that section of uh, scripture. I pray that you would find it the same way. Uh, here's the beauty of that. There's this way of life that God says through Jesus for us to live. And it places us in a needy, needy place. You see, Jesus knows that we cannot fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. He knows that. You're going to see that throughout this next uh, three chapters, that what the Sermon on the Mount is revealed, the neediness of man. And the beauty is that in this, Jesus has come, come to fulfill that neediness. He is the Savior of the world. That's what we're going to come do this morning in, through communion. I ask that the deacons uh, come forward at this time. We're going to take communion. Communion is the way for us to uh, remember that we cannot fulfill the Sermon on the Mount, but there is a Savior of the world, the Savior Jesus Christ, who has come to fulfill all things. And in that, when we place our hope and our faith and our trust in Him, we will be able to fulfill the Sermon on the Mount because it's not because of us, but it's because of Him. This morning, when we come to the communion table, if you're a believer here this morning, we'd ask that even if you're not a member here at Palace Chapel, you are welcome to join us in uh, communion this morning. So if you're a visitor, but you're a believer this morning, please take of the table, take of the, the bread and, and the, the, the juice of Jesus Christ, the body and the blood of Jesus. If you're not a believer here this morning, we ask that you not take, take communion. Communion is for those who have placed their hope and their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that accursed is the man who comes to the table and takes communion who isn't a believer. Uh, Paul also tells us this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He talks ab about this. Um, he says, Whoever therefore eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty um, concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And this is where we must come to before we ever take communion this morning. Let a person examine himself or herself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup, for anyone who dr eats or drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment unto himself. 
That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we have judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And so this morning, before we take communion, let us examine our hearts. If there's anything in our hearts that would prevent us from taking communion in a holy way, I pray that you would confess that. If there's any one of you in here this morning that needs to make it right with your brother or sister in Christ, I pray that you do that before you take communion. Communion is a very holy and sacred thing to us here at Palace Chapel. It's a reminder of what our Savior did for us on the cross. He is the risen Lord Jesus, and we want to remember that this morning. I'll pray for us um, this morning as we first come and we take uh, the bread of the Lord Jesus. God, thanks for this morning. Thanks for this passage of scripture that was read to us. It's such a reminder to us, God, that we cannot on our own fulfill anything of your word, but it's because of your son that came and lived a perfect sinless life and sacrificed his life for us that we could come uh, to this table even this morning and to be reminded of what you did. And so, God, I pray for us um, that it would be true for us this morning that you would say, just as you said uh, 2,000 years ago, this is my body, which, for you, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I pray that we be reminded of what the body of Christ did for us. I pray this in your sweet and famous name. Amen.